If you haven't listened to the first episode of She Says, stop, go back, and listen to that first episode, and this will make a whole lot more sense. This podcast includes adult language and themes. It also contains descriptions about sexual violence. Please be advised. Previously on She Says. I knew which ways were the safer places to walk, especially late at night by yourself, uh, versus the not-so-safe. I walked toward the not-so-safe places, and I kept thinking, my family's going to find me in a field in this shady place near uptown and be dead. And he made a comment and said, this is where I bring everyone. Like she was questioning me more so than asking questions about the man that did this to me. And I pointed from like my head to my toes and I said, does this look like consent to you? When you think about a crime scene, a certain image probably comes to mind. Yellow police tape, flashing red and blue lights, towering police officers with crossed arms standing guard. Your imagination is running wild as you can only guess what the scene looks like behind them. The crime scene is where key evidence is collected carefully and then sent off to a crime lab to be analyzed. But in the case of a sexual assault, the scene of the crime isn't so much a where, but more so a who. It's the body. After Linda's assault, she knew one thing. To better the odds of identifying her attacker, she would have to agree to have a sexual assault exam done, and as soon as possible while she was at the hospital. That meant hours after being violently sexually assaulted, her body would be examined sort of like how a crime scene would. Photos snapped, swabs taken, evidence collected, step by step. I don't remember them asking, but my answer would have been yes, or even if they hadn't asked, I would have said... Do it now. Now. In other words, she knew the examination was part of the process, and she knew time was important. Because as the seconds ticked by, important evidence could be lost. There would have been semen that had was in my mouth. I got so worried because uh, he had a soda can in the car, and I remember taking a, a sip of that and later on thinking, oh, did I do, did I screw up by doing that? From the very start of Linda's assault, she was looking out for key pieces of evidence. From the shirt, she presumed, that had the suspect's last name on it and the company he worked for, to providing Mr. X's name to detectives through an internet search, to being very cognizant of the physical evidence on her. And it's no easy task. And it's just been an absolute nightmare. An absolute nightmare. So I I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't at this point. And while we still are searching for answers, I can tell you one thing. Our next step on this winding road is the most logical one we could possibly take. It's to return to the scene of the crime. From WFAE in Charlotte, I'm Sarah D'Elia. This is She Says. After Mr. X dropped Linda off at a familiar intersection, she says she called the police. An ambulance took her to a local hospital. Her family was notified and met her there. Eventually, she's seen by a SANE nurse. That stands for Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner. Think of them like detectives. They meticulously collect samples from key areas of the body. They may not be able to see it at the time, but they could be capturing the very piece of evidence that ties the assailant to the crime. The role of these SANE nurses cannot be understated. They're interacting with a victim on possibly the worst day of their lives. They have to work compassionately and quickly to collect evidence. 
and there are many steps they must follow. So obviously this comes from uh, the crime lab. Um, this is from Mecklenburg County. So this would be sealed. This has been opened for training purposes. That's Lucy Mominy, a sane nurse with Novant Health. She didn't examine Linda because Linda went to a different hospital. But nurses across the area follow similar procedures. She's showing me a sexual assault kit. It's made of cardboard and not much bigger than a shoebox. Open it, and there's a sea of white envelopes, each with detailed instructions. On the bottom, in this envelope, it has all the step-by-step -step instructions for what's in this kit, uh, when you would collect a certain envelope, gives you a picture of all the swabs and the swab covers, and then it tells you step-by-step. Step. step one is to get your consents. Uh, step two is to collect oral swabs. Each envelope includes comprehensive information on which part of the body the SANE nurse should examine and how to collect a sample and in what order. Quite often, we have patients that come in that don't remember what happened. They, there's a time lapse that they don't recall, and there's circumstances that make them suspicious. So in those cases, we tend to collect all the, because we don't know. To be clear, she's not saying if the victim's story is suspicious, but if a victim can't remember everything that happened during the assault, it's just safer to collect every sample possible at the risk of missing an important piece of evidence. Sane nurses are from all different specialties, trauma, the ER department. These are nurses who go through an additional program recognized by the State Board of Nursing. So they are properly trained as to how to complete a sexual assault kit. In total, it's over 100 hours of classroom and clinical training. Lucy's colleague and fellow SANE, as they refer to each other, Kelly Gerald, says this is a different type of nursing. The way you're able to help your patients and these survivors, it's something I can't explain, like to be able to come in and help them um, in such a time. It definitely takes a special person to be able to do this type of work. Special because, as Lucy points out, it's a process that can't be rushed. It's like conducting a thorough investigation. Efficiency is key, but so is empathy. Of course, we're always nurses first. We always have to think about medical issues first, but it is one of the rare times in nursing when you're really one-on-one -on -one with that patient and try to do our emotional support and also uh, do a, a good exam. Lucy says it takes about four hours to complete the exam, and it's invasive, emotionally and physically. Sometimes the individual needs to take a break, and the exam is put on pause until they're ready to proceed. Linda's hospital experience was, as most are, stressful. She says she felt like the ER doctor was abrupt and wasn't listening to her. But the same nurse who saw her showed her a level of compassion and respect that has stayed with her nearly three years since her assault. She was very, very, very kind, amazing and gentle and took her time and made sure that I was okay with everything. And it took a long time. Uh, lots of swabs, photos. This was the one time throughout this whole process that Linda felt like she was in some kind of control. After her sexual assault kit leaves the hospital, that all goes away. And well, to this day, she's still trying to get some control over her situation. The fate of her case was inside that small box, and she would spend a lot of time worrying about where it was and if it had been processed. She says the one thing the sane nurse didn't do that Linda wishes she had 
was collect all of her clothes. I left in the clothes that I had on from that night. I didn't think till later about, they didn't take my clothes. They did take my underwear, but they did not take the clothes that I was wearing that night. She knew she would never wear those clothes again. Eventually, she says she threw them out. When asked about the collection of additional clothing besides underwear, Lucy says there's a bag in the sexual assault kit that is specifically for additional clothing. Our process is to ask them Mm -hmm. if we can submit the clothing. I mean, I've had instances where people will tell me, this is the only pair of pants I have. And I'll, you know, say to you, can we take your underwear? We have clothing. It's new. It's not donated so that we can give them uh, panties, shirts, that sort of thing. Kelly jumps in here. We highly encourage them to let us collect that clothing to send. And of course, we all, you know, a big question that they will ask is, will I get my clothing back? And that's something that we don't know if they will or will not. We try to make everything about our process patient oriented and letting them have a big part of the say of what they want done and what they don't want done. I mean, they've already been through such a traumatic experience. We don't want to traumatize them anymore. There is the possibility that Linda was asked and she simply doesn't remember. Maybe she was asked and she didn't understand at the time because she was in shock and the nurse didn't want to push her. Linda says she wanted to help the nurse collect as much evidence as she possibly could. So she says she would be surprised if she told the nurse she couldn't take any more clothing. In general, when the sexual assault kit is completed, which includes fingernail swabs, a known cheek scraping, that's the victim's DNA, the collection of clothing, sanitary items, a pubic hair combing, external genitalia swabbing, an anal sample, and in the case of children, the collection of a diaper. It's time to seal the kit. There's a space on the top of the box that reads chain of custody. The same nurse would print their name, sign, and date. You know that this seal has not been broken like this I was the last person to seal this. That provides that chain of custody so that they know that it has not been broken. An evidence sticker is peeled and placed across the opening of the box. When it's been established that the patient has a safe place to go, whether that's home or shelter, he or she is discharged. The next person in line in that chain of custody is typically a police officer. The officer picks up the kit and brings it to CMPD, where it's stored in property and evidence division until tested. But that wait time depends on a lot of things, mainly the priority of the case. When the kit is ready to be tested, it's brought to the crime lab, which is where we'll head next week. In Linda's case, the detective will come to rely on this forensic evidence. Maybe it will connect the dots between the DNA evidence found in Linda's kit to Mr. X's profile in the DNA database of convicted felons. But that's only if he's in there. And of course, if his DNA is actually a match. But I'm not quite done here. I still have some questions about the importance of DNA in sexual assault cases, especially in ones like Linda's that involve a stranger. Not just DNA, but all the physical evidence that you can collect is critical in those stranger cases. That's Harold Medlock. He's a retired chief of police from Fayetteville, North Carolina. And before that, he had a career of more than two decades in various roles with CMPD. Video and uh, from surrounding businesses and and tire tracks where we might think the suspect parked. All of those things are important, but uh, but you're right, DNA is the, is the slam dunk. And 
it's going to help us solve that case and perhaps others if we get the hit. That hit is in reference to a matching DNA profile in the CODIS databases. DNA profiles from sexual assault kits are uploaded to these databases, which contains the DNA profiles of convicted felons, people convicted of certain misdemeanors, and some arrested for violent crimes. It's constantly running, and it can be really helpful in the process of finding a suspect. But it's only helpful, he points out, when the attacker's DNA profile is in CODIS. And the scary part is that you could have someone who has never been in the system, who has never had a swab taken on an arrest or has never been arrested, that could be the worst serial rapist this country has ever known. And once we finally get that DNA, you may clear dozens of cases. But it doesn't protect potential victims out there, and it certainly doesn't make that victim from three years ago feel any better. What makes a victim feel better? A solid investigation, obviously, justice for the crime committed against them, but also compassion. We'll hear more about CMPD's policing philosophy. Is it victim-centric? That, when we come back. I'm Sarah D'Elia. This is She Says. Hey, She Says listeners, last week we asked you to share your stories about being sexually assaulted, where it happened, and whether you reported it to the police or not. We heard from a bunch of you. Here's one story that really stayed with me. I was assaulted when I was active duty in the military, uh, deployed to Afghanistan. I did not file a police report. My unit handled everything, if you can call it handling it. (laughs) Um, And I didn't pursue any type of um, further justice because, as he said, as he was leaving after he was done, I was going to believe you anyway. Thanks to that listener and all the others who called in from all over. Stick around to the very end of this episode to hear more from your fellow She Says listeners. You can also hear their responses online at wfae.org slash she says. Now for this week's question. If you are a sexual assault survivor, did you get a sexual assault exam done and in what state? Why or why not? Please keep your answers to 45 seconds or under. To leave us a voicemail, call 704-448-6511. That's 704-448-6511. You don't have to leave your name, but if you do leave us a voicemail, please know your voice may be part of something featured on our website, on another episode, or possibly the radio. Your deadline is end of day, Tuesday, June 12th, 2018. And thanks for sharing your story. Support for She Says comes from WFAE members and Contemplative Rebellion, a peace and justice jewelry shop offering handmade, socially conscious jewelry, supporting various charitable organizations, such as Women for Women International, on the web at contemplativerebellion.com. I want to tell you about one of our favorite podcasts, Reveal. Host Al Letson and reporters go really deep on stories. It's important journalism, and it's also really fun to listen to. A standout episode looks at Pizzagate, a story about a North Carolina man who believed a crazy rumor that a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. was the center of a child sex trafficking ring and had ties to Hillary Clinton. Reveal reporters go on this incredible saga to understand how the rumor got started and what made it spread so far so fast. You can find Reveal on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Learn more at revealnews.org. All right. 
balanced up and sound checked. You know, I've been talking with a number of you uh, from the last Back in December of 2017, I did a very routine thing for a reporter to do. I went to a press conference. It was at CMPD headquarters. It's a year and a half after Linda's assault. You just heard from Rob Tufano. He's the public affairs director for CMPD. Better than 90% of the sex assaults that Lieutenant Peacock and her detectives investigate unfortunately involve people who know each other. The purpose of this press conference was to provide some information on a string of sexual assaults and sexual assault attempts that took place in 2016 and 2017 that the police were struggling to solve. These particular assaults were occurring in the victims' homes, and they were stranger cases. Lieutenant Peacock's going to talk about some preventative measures that some of our victims didn't take, could have taken, and our community members probably should take. Uh, just uh, best practices. There are things people could do and probably should do, as police would go on to explain, lock your doors or keep your hedges trimmed. But it was never couched with, no one deserves to be sexually assaulted. Even if you leave your door wide open, or say, get in a car with someone you don't know. And it made me wonder, when it comes to investigating sexual assault cases, does CMPD have a victim-centric policing philosophy? And what about the 10% of victims who don't know their assailants? Because people are watching and listening to the language police use, like Linda. Linda remembers hearing coverage of this press conference. Here's what Lieutenant Peacock, the head of the sexual assault unit, said that day. You know, obviously general safety, safety measures should apply. Um, we would always caution every citizen, lock your doors, lock your windows, um, keep a light on, trim the hedges around your doors and windows. Just general safety tips that could, you know, potentially prevent su- such a thing from happening. I know there's a press conference. Yeah, I think and, it's the one I went to a couple of weeks uh, ago. Yeah. Well, I don't know how you stood there and didn't fall through the floor because I'd never heard so much victim blaming in my entire life come out of a press conference, you know, about people should do this or that to prevent getting sexually assaulted. I mean, I really was very disappointed in how that was handled. I, I was livid. You would think that the lieutenant would be trained and know that's not <laughs> that's yeah. not how you handle these things. So that there again, you might have faith in the department in handling in their education of sexual assaults and how to handle the cases and all the inconsistencies that I've dealt with. You know, my faith is starting to dwindle there. Talking about preventative measures is a common thing for police to do. And that in and of itself is not wrong or bad. We could all probably stand to hear lock your doors more. But you're hearing it firsthand from Linda, a victim of sexual assault. She says to her, the message is one of victim blaming. I recently had a chance to talk to Rob Tufano about that press conference. I wanted to have a better understanding about how CMPD talks about preventative measures when it comes to sexual assault. And I wanted to know if he could say it again differently, would he? To refresh your memory, this is how he started that press conference in December. Lieutenant Peacock's going to talk about some preventative measures that some of our victims didn't take, could have taken, and our community members probably should take, uh, just uh, best practices. This is what he said when we sat down in person in a recent interview. You know what, I wouldn't change one single syllable, not one. In fact, I go so far as to say everyone right now, within the sound of my voice, needs to go to bed tonight with their doors locked, with their windows locked, uh, before they go to sleep. You know, I'd love to live in a world where a single woman, a woman living by herself, can go to sleep at night without having to lock her doors 
or windows and not have to fear that some attacker is going to barge his way in in the middle of the night and victimize her. That's not the world I live in. I wish I lived in that world. That's not the world I live in. That's not the world we live in. It's not a reality. You know, and that's unfortunate. It makes me sad. It really does. It makes me sad for those victims who did nothing wrong. It makes me sad as a father of four daughters who can't grow up in a world where they feel safe. It makes me sad as a person who's seen tragedy like this for decades through the eyes of victims. You know, I think a lot of people forget that we have a responsibility in law enforcement that really goes beyond solving the next crime. We have a bigger responsibility to try to prevent the next crime. And if that means that sometimes we have to scream it from the mountaintops, ways that people can protect themselves, preventative measures that they can employ to keep themselves safe, we can't be there mm -hmm. everywhere at once. We have a responsibility to get out in front of the community and let them know what exactly it is that they can do to keep them, uh, themselves safe. And I safe. get that and I appreciate mm -hmm. that, but shouldn't that be couched by no one deserves to be sexually assaulted? Even Absolutely. If you, even if you leave your door wide open. You know what? I'd love to be able to tell everyone tonight that they can go to bed and not lock their doors and windows. That would be a great world. That's the way we should live, but it's not reality. You do this for a living. You cover some of this tragedy. I do this for a living. I see a lot of this tragedy, have seen it for, for decades. We have a responsibility to our community to let them know exactly what- I get that. We live in a world where horrible things happen to good people or even just subpar people all the time, and they don't deserve that. But police think that they're speaking to victims in a way that's helping them. And if those victims disagree, isn't something being lost in translation? One more thing about this press conference. At some point, there's going to be some movement in Linda's case, and I can't tell you much more than that right now. What I will say is that in December of 2017, not two weeks after this press conference I went to, Linda is waiting on the detective to do something that could really move her case forward. Again, this is a year and a half since her assault. She says she's been waiting and waiting for the detective to collect an important piece of potential evidence. And when Linda finally asks the detective when she'll be able to go and collect this potentially really important piece of evidence for her case, she says the detective's response is she isn't sure. Another case has come up. That they're busy and that she had no idea when she would be getting uh, to my case. I'd been told in the past that mine was a priority and pushed up. Now I understand that things change and there can become higher priority cases. So who weighs that out and how so? I, I, I'm not sure. All paths on this winding road are connected, even when they are roadblocks. The head of the sexual assault unit, Lieutenant Melanie Peacock, told me her detectives treat all victims equally and are sensitive to the trauma caused by sexual assault. One of the things that's important to, to mention is that we're very victim-centered in how we approach our investigation. What that means is we try to give the victim a very you know, powerful role in what they want to see happen with their case. For some victims, prosecution is just not something they're interested in, and we do our best to honor that decision. Um, if they're really not interested in that, um, and you know, we're certainly concerned about them getting the resources they need to help heal, um, that's certainly our paramount goal. I mean, we might be police officers, but we're also people, and we don't ever want to compel a victim to go forward with something that they're not comfortable with. Linda has always known she's wanted to pursue charges and help police find her assailant. And when she struggled, her detective has referred her to services in the area for sexual assault victims. 
But it's one thing to give the power to victims. It's another to build a solid, trusting relationship with them. That's what former Fayetteville chief of police and retired CMPD police officer Harold Medlock sees as the key. I don't know if it's we're if I'm victim centric. I think I'm relationship centric. It's about building those relationships with the crime victims, but also with the people out there committing the crimes. He said by the end of his career, he was definitely more victim centric, but that it wasn't always like that. It was a shift in thinking he had to make over time. Part of that change in philosophy came into play when he was a CMPD homicide commander. I have to give uh, credit to, to my friend Rodney Monroe. That's Rodney Monroe, as in Charlotte's former police chief. I was the homicide commander here in Charlotte when he was hired here, and we were very um, suspect or perpetrator focused. I, I had an opportunity to learn as his homicide commander that we really needed to consider ourselves as the victim advocate in working homicides. And, and, of course, I had the rape and robber units under me at that time, too. And so we really started to change our thought process to telling the victims and their families, we work for you in this case. And, you know, that's a hard pill to swallow when you're looking at a victim, and in most cases, uh, a homicide victim's family, and you know that that individual is someone who was involved in criminal activity for the majority of their life, and you tell their mother or their father or both, we're working for you uh, in this case. And, you know, it's it's hard for them to believe, too, because we've always uh, probably had that divide with their child perhaps being involved in uh, criminal activity. But when we started to take that approach and really uh, open those lines of communication, uh, some people believed us right away. Others, it took a while for for them to figure out that we really did work for them. It started to to help us solve cases quicker. And in the future, it helped us prevent retaliation, shootings or murders or assaults. Uh, And it helped us solve crimes down the road because we had that relationship with the families. Maybe being relationship-centric is part of being victim-centric. That's what it sounds like to me. Linda says she doesn't feel heard throughout the course of her case. She's desperate for her case to be heard by someone. So much so, she contacts her local public radio station, and a reporter who recently fell into a crime beat role takes her call. That's me, by the way. Eventually, I go out to meet her in person. That first meeting was in June of 2017, almost two years since her assault. She's telling me her story. I'm listening. I spend the day going over what it would mean to do this story. As the thought of five o'clock traffic loomed ahead, I started to get my things together. But she wanted me to stay just a while longer. She wanted to reach the detective while I was still there and see if there was an update. The detective did answer. Linda puts the call on speakerphone. They have a pleasant enough conversation about her case for about 20 minutes. Basically, there's no update. Okay, I think. Time to go. But then the detective calls her back a few minutes later. Linda puts the call on speakerphone again. The detective is asking her to come into the station that week to go over the case face-to-face. Let's do Friday at 1. I'm anxious to, you know, I've I've been waiting and waiting, um, so, you know. Linda doesn't know how to feel. Is this a good thing? Bad thing? All she knows, she says, is that she can't wait to go down to the CMPD headquarters for what she believes is an update. But what happens next is a sharp turn no one sees coming. I'm Sarah D'Elia. Next time on She Says. I don't know what they've done or haven't done 
or slipped up on. Okay, okay. Has anything, what prompted this, just us talking or, or what? She said she felt certain that it was him. And I remember my response was very quick and I said, I know it's him. I mean, there's just no question there, period, in the story. She Says is written, produced, and reported by me, Sarah D'Elia. Our editor is Greg Collard. Joni Deutsch is our producer. Alex Olgan is our reporter. Music is provided by Pachyderm Music Lab. Keep the conversation going on Twitter using the hashtag WFAE She Says. You can tweet at me directly at Sarah WFAE, and that's Sarah with an H. If you want next week's episode in your feed as soon as it comes out, make sure to subscribe to She Says on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can find out more information about the podcast at WFAE.org slash She Says. Thanks for listening. Yes, I was assaulted. I am a survivor. The assault happened in my house. I did not file a police report. This was a very close friend. I was sexually assaulted at a friend's house. It was my first time being there. Um, I did not file a police report because we had both been drinking that night. And even though I was the one blacking out and he was on top of me, I still felt responsible for what happened. I was sexually assaulted in my college dorm room. Um, I did not file a police report, and I didn't because it's taken me almost 10 years to admit that I was raped. I probably never will file a report, but, um, yeah, I didn't even know it was rape until I dug deep into my therapy and realized I had been drugged and raped. Thanks for letting me share my story.